Welcome to podcast episode number two. This is Dr. Sean Canone, Chief Medical Officer for MPAC Healthcare, and our topic today is acetylcholine and the brain. This is a continuation of our conversation from last time, where we learned about acetylcholine, a chemical messenger or neurotransmitter that functions throughout the body, and in the brain, acetylcholine has a primary role in cognition. Cognition we defined as things like memory, learning, judgment, insight, executive functioning. And as it relates to acetylcholine, proper cognitive functioning depends on several things. One, it depends on the ability of the presynaptic neuron to make new acetylcholine and release it into the synapse. Secondly, it depends on that acetylcholine traveling through the synapse and not being degraded or broken down by cholinesterase enzymes. And third, cognition, normal cognition, relates to the ability of the postsynaptic neuron to then receive that acetylcholine chemical message. In terms of receiving the chemical message, we're speaking specifically about the muscarinic 1 receptor in the brain. If you recall, there are five known muscarinic receptors in the body, labeled M1 through M5. Acetylcholine, therefore, depending on which receptor is engaged, can create a variety of physiological responses, including heart rate suppression, bronchoconstriction, salivation, urination, bowel movements, and accommodation or visual clarity. But now focusing in on cognition, which is our topic for today, acetylcholine and the brain, we're going to look at abnormal cognitive processes, specifically dementia. So when we typically think of the the most common cognitive impairments that we see in long-term care, post-acute care, we think of dementia. And oftentimes that leads us directly to the thought of Alzheimer's disease. And today we're going to talk about these things, but in a very general overview, very simplistic way. And we'll come back to these dementias in more detail at a later date. It's important for us, though, to at least establish a working definition for dementia, So it's important for us to note that dementia is not a specific diagnosis because it's not a specific disease, but rather it's a term that encompasses a variety of symptoms, including changes in cognition, function, and behavior. There are two main broad categories of dementias, the reversible and the irreversible, and it's very important to try to distinguish between the two because, as the names state, Uh, Some are reversible and some are irreversible. So if we can make a proper diagnosis, oftentimes we can really help our patients. The reversible dementias are things like uh, hypothyroidism, uh, B12 and folate deficiency, neurosyphilis, uremia, brain tumors that are operable, normal pressure hydrocephalus, which we'll come back to on a later date, a very interesting entity. And then finally, medication-induced dementias, which we'll talk more about today. The irreversible dementias are by far the most common that we see in our environment. These are things like Alzheimer's disease dementia, Lewy body dementia, vascular dementia, Parkinson's disease dementia, and then obviously mixtures of those, mixed dementias. The most common of all irreversible dementias is by far Alzheimer's disease. It accounts for about 75% of all irreversible dementia. And so that's where we'll focus most of our attention today. Alzheimer's disease is a very interesting thing. It's a chronic progressive degenerative illness. So if you think about those terms, 
We know that Alzheimer's disease has no cure. It's not going to get better. It's going to continue to decline in its natural course. From the standpoint of prevalence, Alzheimer's disease is at fairly epidemic proportions. It's said that at age 85, one in every two people will have some degree of Alzheimer's disease. That's a fairly staggering number. And the question becomes, how do we diagnose it? How do we identify it? And the true answer is that the definitive diagnosis of Alzheimer's only comes on autopsy. When the brain is dissected and they see plaques and tangles that are pathognomonic for Alzheimer's disease, that's when you can confirm that diagnosis. But in practice, we make this diagnosis as an educated guess based on the presentation of the patient who's in front of us and based on their cognitive, functional, and behavioral decline. This brings us naturally to the staging of Alzheimer's disease, which typically is done using cognitive scales like the MMSE or the BIMS. We can also stage by function. This would be a measurement of ADLs, and the most common scale utilized there would be the FAST scale, the Functional Assessment Staging Scale, which is often used to determine hospice eligibility. We can also look at things like behaviors and the trajectory of their behavioral changes and decline. And finally, if you put all three of those categories together, cognition, function, and behavior, there are scales that measure global impact of Alzheimer's disease. And typically, those global scales relate directly to caregiver burden. Because when you think about it, for a caregiver who's providing this level of care to a patient with Alzheimer's disease, as cognitive decline, functional decline, and behavioral decline occur, the caregiver burden typically rises. So what is the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's disease? What is going on below the surface that's creating these manifestations that we so commonly recognize? Well, we've talked a little bit about plaques and tangles, and we see that on autopsy of the brain. But at an even deeper level, there are some very interesting things going on and most of it relates to diminishing acetylcholine activity in the brain over time. Why is there diminishing acetylcholine activity? Well, first, because neurons are dying in the brain. If you look at the brain of an Alzheimer's patient under CAT scan, you'll see atrophy, or loss of brain volume, from the destruction of neurons that's occurring. So just the sheer loss of neurons creates less opportunity for acetylcholine to be made and released. But there's also another very interesting thing going on in the Alzheimer's brain, and that is that in Alzheimer's disease, there's a loss of choline acetyltransferase. This is an enzyme that is responsible for making new acetylcholine in the presynaptic neuron. So as acetylcholine activity diminishes in the brain over time, in a patient with Alzheimer's disease, we think about treatment options. And right now, there are four FDA-approved treatment options for Alzheimer's disease. Three of them are cholinesterase inhibitors. One is an NMDA receptor antagonist. The NMDA receptor antagonist is Namenda. And we'll talk about Namenda at a different time in a later podcast because it's a very interesting medication that works in a very different way. But as we talk about acetylcholine and influencing the activity of acetylcholine in the brain, we focus on Aricept, Exelon, and Razodyne. And we will go into more depth on each of these medications and what makes them similar and different, but we should know at this point that they are all in the family of cholinesterase inhibitors. 
So as we begin treatment on a patient with Alzheimer's disease with one of these cholinesterase inhibitors, we must first define the goals of our treatment. Because Alzheimer's disease is chronic, progressive, and degenerative in nature, the benefit is a little bit hard to define. It really is the slowing of decline of symptoms of dementia. If you can keep a patient stable for any period of time, that's a huge success with treatment, but it's hard sometimes for us to get into our minds that a patient who is still declining is actually having benefit from the treatment. We also must define the term benefit because there are actually four different realms of benefit that can be seen when treating a patient with Alzheimer's disease. Yes, we may see stabilization or the slowing of decline in cognition, but this also can apply to function, which are their ADLs, as well as behavior and caregiver burden. So the reasons that we use a dementia drug are to hopefully benefit all four of those domains. With regard to the three cholinesterase inhibitors, Aricept, Exelon, and Razadine, it's very important for us to understand what these cholinesterase inhibitors will and will not do in the brain when we give them to a patient. First, they will not reverse Alzheimer's disease damage that's already occurred to the brain. That's irreversible. They will also not increase the manufacturing of new acetylcholine or the stimulating of any release of acetylcholine from the presynaptic neuron. The cholinesterase inhibitors will not directly interact or engage acetylcholine. And that may be surprising to some of you, but they actually never touch acetylcholine directly. The fourth thing that they will not do is they will not interact or engage with the muscarinic 1 receptor at all. So there's no stimulation of the muscarinic 1 receptor. There's no mimicking of acetylcholine that's taking place when you give a patient Exelon, Aricept, or Razadine. And it's very important to know that these drugs will not be confined to the brain. They can travel throughout the body and impact acetylcholine in different organ systems. So what is it that these cholinesterase inhibitors do? How do these drugs help patients who have Alzheimer's disease, Alzheimer's dementia? Where is the benefit coming from? And the answer is they are cholinesterase inhibitors. They inhibit cholinesterase enzymes, and these enzymes are typically found in the synapse, as we described in the last episode, and they are responsible for breaking down acetylcholine that's traveling through the synapse. It's a normal part of recycling acetylcholine, but as we know, once that acetylcholine is degraded in the Alzheimer's brain, it's very difficult to take those components and repackage them again. So over time, those levels get more and more depleted. So all an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor does is increase the likelihood that acetylcholine is going to get through the synapse and bind to the muscarinic 1 receptor and allow for normal cognitive processes. The question then becomes, well, how do we optimize that treatment effect? What are some things we can do to make sure that patients get the maximum benefit from an Alzheimer's medication? The first thing that we should do is reduce anticholinergic load or burden. And we're probably going to spend maybe another podcast talking about anticholinergic load because it's such an important concept in geriatric medicine. But what you have to know is that anticholinergic medications can block any 
and sometimes all of the muscarinic 1 receptors in the body. So if we take a medication that has anticholinergic properties, it could block the muscarinic 1 receptor or the muscarinic 2 receptor, so on. And we know that there are hundreds of medications that carry anticholinergic properties. Some of them have a tremendous amount of anticholinergic activity, some of them very little. But the principle that we need to understand is anticholinergic load or burden. What we found is that as you add more and more medications to a typical elderly patient's drug regimen, many of them have some degree of anticholinergic activity and they stack on top of one another and become cumulative in nature and can cause all kinds of problems. To, to kind of give you an idea of how significant this is, back in 1992, Dr. Larry Toon was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry and his study looked at the 25 most commonly used medications in the elderly, and he found that 14 of them had anticholinergic activity, and that 9 of those 14 had the ability to impair memory in a normal elderly adult. Can you guess the 9? Well, these 9 were very, very common medications, and they still are. And they're not the ones we typically think of as having high anticholinergic activity. We tend to think of things like the bladder drugs, Ditropan, Detrol, or something like a Benadryl or a tricyclic antidepressant. And yes, those are all very high anticholinergic drugs. But the, the drugs that Dr. Toon found that were substantial enough to really impair memory in an elderly adult included things like Warfarin, Theophylline, Zantac, which is ranitidine, Prednisone, Procardia, which is nifedipine, nitroglycerin, Lasix, digoxin, and Tagamet, which is cimetidine. And actually that one, cimetidine, was the worst of all. And it's unfortunate that cimetidine is very easily accessible in any local pharmacy over the counter. So for any elderly patient or loved one that you have who still goes to the pharmacy, maybe self-treats for heartburn, you definitely want to steer them clear of cimetidine. So diminishing anticholinergic load or burden is the first step in trying to make these dementia medications most effective. If you can free up the muscarinic 1 receptor as much as possible, that acetylcholine has a better chance of getting there and having its impact. The second thing we can do is to optimize dosing of their cholinesterase inhibitor, getting them to higher doses and not leaving them at a starting dose for too long. This is really important because you want the maximum benefit from the medication. Obviously you want to balance this with tolerability and side effects as much as possible, but thinking about how to uh, make adherence simpler for the patient or the caregiver, whether that's changing the route of administration, maybe using a patch instead of an oral formulation, or thinking about how often a drug may need to be dosed throughout the day to make it simpler for the patient or the family. These are all very important things to consider. Third, combination therapy. Because Nemenda is such a different type of dementia drug with a very different approach, Nemenda can be used in combination with the cholinesterase inhibitor, and we'll talk about this in future episodes, but the two together can have a more profound effect than either alone. And finally, there are non-pharmacological behavioral approaches to helping patients with dementia. And I think this is where our licensed clinical social worker model really comes in handy to address the non-pharmacological behavioral side of Alzheimer's interventions 
is a huge adjunct to pharmacological therapy. So now that we have our drug optimized, we're going to be getting hit with a pharmacist recommendation potentially for dose reduction. And so we need to talk about dose reduction in the realm of cholinesterase inhibitors because these dementia drugs all fall under the more broad header of psychotropic medications per CMS regulation. So the first thing that we should always be doing with all medications is questioning their necessity. So we ask, is this drug still necessary for my patient? The second thing we should have in mind with these CMS regulations is that we should always be thinking of attempting to gradually dose-reduce psychotropic medications in an effort to get to lowest effective dose or maybe to eliminate the drug altogether. This is a little bit trickier with the cholinesterase inhibitors. Typically, it's considered a clinical contraindication to dose-reduce cholinesterase inhibitor drugs because the standard of practice dictates that we get to optimal dosing and leave patients there unless they're having some form of an adverse event or side effect. In fact, one of the dangers of dose-reducing dementia medications is that you may not see the actual benefit of the drug until the benefit is gone, and that can take up to four to six weeks to occur. And most of the data shows that by the time you've kept people off therapy for four to six weeks and are starting to see what the patient looks like without that treatment in place, it's too late to go back and recover that ground and get them back to their previous baseline. So for those reasons, I typically recommend, as long as there's not some potential problem with the medication, to leave it in place and to document well that this is the standard of practice for treating Alzheimer's disease. So this brings us to a very important point in the discussion today, which is the logical conclusion and very common question of, well, when do you stop these dementia medications? There has to be a point when they're not necessary anymore, when they're not beneficial. How do we know when to stop them? And I think that's a great question to ask. What I would say is that first, we make sure that we define the benefit of the drug appropriately. And we did this earlier in the conversation, but the benefit that we see in the long-term care post-acute care setting is probably not going to be primarily around cognitive improvement or even cognitive stabilization. Many of our folks are in the moderate to severe stages of their Alzheimer's disease dementia, and stabilizing cognition at that point is not a huge selling feature. But the preserving or slowing of the decline of ADLs or the stabilizing of behaviors that are related to dementia or reducing the likelihood that they might need a more dangerous drug to control those behaviors like an antipsychotic or an anticonvulsant, those become kind of our holistic approach for defining benefit with a cholinesterase inhibitor. So what happens when a patient is nearing end of life? Maybe they're even moving toward hospice. How do we decide if we're going to remove cholinesterase inhibitor therapy uh, or if we're going to keep that in place? And this would go for uh, Nemenda, the NMDA receptor antagonist as well. Here's what I would typically do. These are the questions that I would ask myself as I think through that process with a family of when to discontinue these drugs. The first question is, is there any benefit with this medication to stabilizing their cognition or to slowing its decline? If the answer is no, 
they're non-interactive, there are really no cognitive processes that are meaningful, then cross that one off the list and go to the next question. The next question is, is there any benefit to stabilizing their ADLs or slowing their decline? And if the answer is no, they're a full care, they don't really have any ADL or functional capacity on their own, then cross that one off the list and move to the next question, which is, is there any benefit to stabilizing behaviors or slowing their decline into something more severe? Or are they still having behaviors that are requiring other more dangerous medications like antipsychotics or anticonvulsants or benzodiazepines? If they are still having issues and maybe even needing those kinds of medications to help, then pulling the dementia drugs away may only create bigger problems and the need for higher doses of those other medications. Finally, we ask the question, is there any possible benefit to reducing caregiver burden? Can we help the caregiver, whether that's a family or the nursing home staff, by treating this patient, are we helping them in any way? And if the answers to the first three questions are all no, that they're more vegetative, they're full care, they have no cognitive processes, they don't even really have any behavioral issues, then you take these medications away because they're not going to benefit any of those three spheres and they're obviously not going to benefit caregiver burden at that point. So that's kind of our summary of acetylcholine in the brain. I hope that was interesting for you. To some extent, we're going to keep diving into some different uh, organ systems of the body that use acetylcholine, and I think uh, this will start to make more and more sense as we go. I want to thank you for taking time to listen today. I hope it was helpful to you. And if you have any questions, feel free to email me at any time.